We're going to jump to Acts this morning for our time in our text. Jump back to Acts. I know we, we were talking about our core values last, last week and looking how the church in Acts actually was an example of all four of our core values. But today we want to jump to Acts chapter 8. And this is a turning point in the story, one of several turning points in Acts. But we are about to move the, the camera in episode 2 here. The camera is about to move from Jerusalem to a much broader range of the area around Jerusalem. I mean, back to the very beginning where we were talking about episode 2 and um, Empire Strikes Back and all that. We're now moving from Hoth out to Dagobah and some of the other... Sorry, okay, those of you that, those of you that love Star Wars are like, yeah, but... Um, Mark Twain, interesting situation that happened to him. He's credited for the humorous quote, the report of my death has been greatly exaggerated, Right? I don't know if you've heard about this. The, the story's interesting. That's not quite what he said. As with a lot of quotes, they get changed over time. But, but the story is, is interesting because he's one of a few people who was lucky enough to comment on his own obituary. And so in 1897, an English journalist from the New York Journal contacted Twain to inquire whether the rumors of his death were indeed true. It's hard to read that with a straight face. Excuse me, sir, are are you dead? Um, Twain wrote a response, part of which made it into the article that ran in the journal on June 2nd, 1897. Um, And the article said this, Mark Twain was undecided whether to be more amused or annoyed when a journal representative informed him today of the report in New York that he was dying in poverty in London. The great humorist, while not perhaps very robust, is in the best of health. He said, I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness got about. I have even heard on good authority that I was dead. James Ross Clemens, a cousin of mine, was seriously ill two or three weeks ago in London, but is well now. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. <laughs> I feel like the report of death is more than an exaggeration. <laughs> um, now, as it, as it so happens, a biography was written and a couple of years after his death in 1912. Um, according to that version, Twain had told the reporter, just say the report of my death has been greatly exaggerated or grossly exaggerated. So, you know, it, it morphs over time. But what an interesting situation to hear that you're dead and to have to combat that somehow and say, no, no, not, not so much today. I'm doing okay. Today, as we come to the church, you're probably wondering what that has to do with Acts. Um, We come to the church, and in Acts chapter 8, we have an interesting situation where the church basically looks like it's dead. And the first few verses, the report looks like the church is dead. But praise God, the report of the church's death was greatly exaggerated. And it did not happen. The church survived, and in fact, the church thrived. The gospel is unquenchable, as is God's church. And so we want to look at this this morning as rather than being extinguished, the church grew and spread and thrived. As we know from a couple weeks ago, the church has been growing, but Stephen was just martyred. And we have our first martyr of the early church as he was killed in Jerusalem. It was a point of crisis. And the church had to respond or had to decide how will they respond in crisis. One of their leaders, one of the seven in this case, was killed for preaching the gospel. And so do we back off? Do we go into seclusion? Or how do we respond? And the same questions we have as we hit crisis, especially crises where people question our faith. 
uh, crises where we maybe question our faith. How will we respond? And it's interesting because we see that the church continues to grow. And one author said that the growth of the church is paved on drops of blood. And as hard as that is, it is. The blood of martyrs, the imprisonment and beatings of Christians, there was a real cost to following Christ. And, and if I would add, there was a real cost to being part of Christ's church. And we're going to see that today and see how people responded. As we study the trials and the suffering and the difficulties, we, we see the cost of discipleship. And we also today are going to see an example of a man who tried to get around the cost of discipleship, who tried to morph discipleship into something for his own benefit and his f- own financial gain. And so we'll see this comparison of true believers that are willing to give all for God's church, that are so committed that nothing would stop them from helping God's church, and someone who let personal gain and personal ideas and personal preferences stop that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to spend our time looking at the first 25 verses this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you, a black hardcover one. We'd love for you to have that. Look up the text with us so you can see that it's right out of God's Word. But also, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that as our gift to you as we want you to have God's Word. If I had to summarize these 25 verses, you see that summary at the top of your notes. The ravaged church powerfully spreads to Judea and Samaria in the middle of difficulties, through those who are genuinely repentant at heart. Those that are genuinely willing to count the cost. So we get to the first four verses. And my, my summary of the first four verses, first three verses rather, the destruction and death of the church begins. So going back to the Mark Twain story, this is the report of the church's death. Now listen to these three verses. And Saul approved of his execution. Again, that's sort of a transition phrase from last time where Stephen is being killed. Saul is holding the garments and Saul is approving of the execution of Stephen. Luke here is a a brilliant storyteller. He's setting up Saul, who's going to be Paul, coming up in the book of Acts, not setting him up in a really good way. By the way, he's killing people in the church and we're going to find it gets worse. Go on in verse 1 there. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Just take those three verses for a moment. How's the church doing? The church looks like it's dying, right? The church is being attacked and, and people are being killed. People are, are being take, taken to prison. And the three things you see there in those three verses, the first one in verse 1, they're facing intense persecution. The success, and, and what, what it looks like has happened is there was success by the leaders in finally taking Stephen out, finally taking one of the leaders out. And in this case, as opposed to every time earlier in Acts, the people were okay with it. Before, you remember, we we kept reading they were afraid to do anything because they were afraid of the people. In this case, the people supported it, picked up stones and helped. And so this is a turning point 
where the leaders, and you have to understand all of the, the political intrigue, the power plays that are happening here, the leaders are saying, this worked. We took out Stephen, the people were okay with it, and so this ushered in an age uh, that, that just doubled down on the persecution. If we can take out Stephen, we can take out them all. We can get rid of them. And so this, this great persecution started. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, step it up because they think they have a plan. They think they have a way to, to do this. It says a great persecution, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Think about this for a minute. The numbers we had when we talked about 5,000 men, so then you count their families, we are talking at roughly around 10,000 people that were in Jerusalem that suddenly are having to leave, that were meeting house to house. Now, now understand, there also were people that were wealthy in Jerusalem that were opening up their houses to the church. They didn't have a building. They didn't say, hey, let's go meet at you know, the Colosseum or whatever. They were meeting in houses, and the wealthy Christians were opening up their houses. Christians were meeting there. They all had to leave. And so the wealthy lost their homes. They lost their property for fear of their lives. They, now, they could have, at this point, denounced Christianity. They could have denounced Christ. They could have denounced the church and said, we're not part of it. But as a whole, these believers counted the cost and stepped up and said, no, we are following Jesus Christ and we are part of his church. And it cost them. It cost them dearly. The word for persecution there is to systematically harass and oppress for the purpose of changing someone's mind, to get them to recant, to get them to give up. And so the church was, in, uh, was facing intense persecution. Second, verse 2, they were facing that one of their leaders was martyred. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And again, we can go by this verse in a, in, in a hurry because we just talked about Stephen. Oh, yeah, okay, they were, they were upset. But there's a number of things to realize here. This was the first of their leaders that was martyred. If someone... and and, and I'm thankful our our kids aren't in here for some of this today. But if someone was to say, take one of our our deacons. Uh, Let's take two just for fun. Let's take Troy and Jacob. And um, you don't have to actually come up because I don't want to actually do this to you. Um, But if they were to bring them up front in the middle of all of us and execute them in front of you, might that cause a, a disturbance in the church? Yeah, can you see how the church is at risk and feeling attacked. Now the verse goes on to say that devout men came and buried him in great lamentations. We have to understand the culture here to understand the, the, the import of that verse. It was illegal to take someone that had been stoned, especially for insurrection. It was illegal to be part of them, to be associated with them, and to mourn for them in any public way. That was considered agreement with them and, be, and being an accomplice And so these men, devout men, buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. That was a huge statement of their courage because that was illegal. And it would be like if, so we have, not to get morbid, but Troy and Jacob up here. And then the the executioner said, okay, anyone, anyone sorry about that? Anyone want to take care of them? You're next. And like all of you come up and say, I don't care. This was one of our own. We're going to take care of them. That's what happened here. 
And so we see a courageous church in the middle of crisis that is willing to grieve and willing to grieve publicly and willing to bury. Uh, Incidentally, we saw the same thing after the death of Christ where Joseph of Arimathea came up and said, use my tomb. And some of the others came and asked for the body and they buried him. Those were very courageous things to do. But I want us to get what Luke is trying to do in this first three verses is paint a picture of how bad it was for the church at this point. And I hope we're getting that. Verse 3, it goes on, but Saul was ravaging the church. And this is the third trial they faced is they have this man that's just ravaging the church. And the word for ravaging there was the word that was used for a person torn up by a wild beast, a bear or a lion or a boar or a leopard. And, and the tearing and ripping of their flesh, that is the word that is used for what Saul was doing to the church. And, and I think that's important for a couple of things for us to understand what the, why the church might want to give up here and how amazing it is that they don't. It's also setting up the Saul, Paul storyline of how, how far gone he was, what he was doing to the church. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, He dragged off men and women, which, by the way, that's just upping the the persecution even more. It's one thing to do it to the men, but to start taking the women too, throwing them in in prison here. We know from other writings they were being beaten. Some were being killed. And so the church was facing the, the largest crisis they had ever faced at this time. Paul himself writes in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So when we talk about the the, the destruction of the church begins, that is what he was trying to do. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so we have to understand the distress. It's over for the church, guys. They had a good run. Hope they all loved it. Let's move on. And so we have a picture of hopelessness. Ever felt that way? Ever felt in our culture that it's hopeless for the church? We have the same unquenchable gospel. We're the same unquenchable church that God founded. That hasn't changed. Nothing is going to stop the work of Christ. Nothing is going to stop the church. And so we, we, we should not despair but we should hope and seek to follow what God wants us to do and seek to expand the gospel and watch the miracles that God does. But we can feel this way. We can feel in despair, especially if we're doing the right thing in this world. But that's point number one isn't where we stop this morning. That would be a really unfortunate message. But we go to verse 4 and 4 through 8. And and the point there is the report of the church's death was greatly exaggerated. To steal from Mark Twain. So if I cite it, it's research. So to research Mark Twain, the report of the church's death was greatly exaggerated. Listen to what happened. It It is fantastic. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, Now that right there is a key verse. How did the church survive? They scattered. Life is horrible. It looked like the end. And they didn't shut up about the gospel. Everywhere they went got to hear the gospel. And this is beautiful. And so they didn't mope. They didn't shut down. 
They didn't say, woe is me, what am I going to do? They went places and said, did you hear about Jesus? Imagine what happens when 10,000 people move out of Jerusalem. Now, in our mind, we're like, oh, we'd hardly notice it. But in smaller towns, this was a huge movement of people into the surrounding area. And so they move into the area. Imagine what happens. People are going to ask in small towns, hey, where'd you come from? Oh, I heard there was some unrest in Jerusalem. What's going on there? We have open doors all over the place for the gospel. And so they go out preaching. Oh, what an example for us. They, they, the circumstances didn't matter. They scattered. They were preaching the word. They went to Judea and Samaria, we know from, from the verse prior and from the verses to come. Re- remember back, put our, our way back machine on to like three months ago or two months ago. Acts 1.8. Do you remember Acts 1.8? I said this was a key to the structure of the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, right? Chapters 1 through 7. Jerusalem first and in Judea and Samaria. That's chapter 8. That's where we're at right now. And then to the ends of the, the earth, and that's where we're going in Acts, when we see the ministry of, of Paul, Saul, Paul. But here, they are directly going to Judea and Samaria. This is directly what God said would happen in Acts 1.8. Now, it looks as if they needed a little shove. Because life was really good for the church in Jerusalem. Community was really good. But God used circumstances to not let, allow his church to be killed, but to cause his church to thrive. Just a, a quick map so we understand here. Um, I almost forgot to use, to use a map. Um, so just understanding where we're at. This is Israel here. This is Jerusalem. And, and you know, we talk about Bethlehem being real close. That's about five miles away. Um, so Jerusalem and Bethlehem, this is where the church was located, about 10,000 people worshiping in the temple, house to house, eating amazing things. The light blue here is Judea, which is largely a Jewish population. They would consider themselves purebred Jews or traditional Jews, true Jews. And then up here was Samaria. And so we're talking maybe 30, 40, 50 miles away. And I, I know we think hundreds of, or thousands of miles. This isn't a huge amount, but this region is, is very difficult for Jews to accept. We have to understand the culture. Remember Samaritans, and this goes back to the good Samaritans and some of the other things. The people in Samaria were not considered Gentiles and they were not considered Jews. They were called half-breeds of the time and they were a result of intermarriages, a result of some of the people that had stayed um, stayed when, when Israel was attacked and had married other cultures. And so these people in Samaria were hated by these people in Judea. So the story worked. We have to understand it on a whole different level this morning. This isn't just about the gospel spreading. This is about the gospel spreading to people that were hated, people that were of... Um, uh, uh, that were marginalized. I want to say a different ethnicity, but they really weren't, but they thought they were, if that makes sense. They were so hated and so despised. And the message of this story is that the gospel is for them too. And the church is to include everyone. We're going to get there. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because it's, it's really exciting. But um, that's, the, that's what's happening here. 
So five, it says, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria, coming from Jerusalem, and he goes down to the cities of Samaria. Now, our Western mindset, what's the first thing you notice? He went up on the map, right? Pastor Ron's got it wrong. We, we say go up to Samaria. No, remember, Jerusalem is up in the mountains, and so this actually goes down in elevation. Everything went down from Jerusalem. So just fun geography facts. And, and, and I think, for me, proving the Bible is correct. I mean, so that's not an error. He went down. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So even the leaders, even the seven leaders, the seven, well, six, Stephen is um, with Jesus at this point. Um, the six remaining Hellenist Jews, they all left. The only people left in Jerusalem were the apostles. We're not sure why they, they were able to stay, um, but they, were, they stayed in Jerusalem and, and just sort of managed the church from there. Philip, in verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, to this fringe people, to the people that were crossing a boundary. Remember the word Christ there was a Greek word that they would recognize as Messiah. So he's proclaiming to them Messiah. And interestingly enough, the people at Samaria, they were looking forward to a Messiah. They were looking forward to, we saw that even with the woman at the well, that Jesus met, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so Philip goes to Samaria and tells them about the Christ, the one who will tell them of all things. And he uses a way that Jesus has already prepared these people as a door for the gospel. And in verse 6, 7, we see their response, and it's, it's great. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so Philip goes, we we sort of narrow in, the whole church scatters. We narrow in on one of the people, Philip. He goes to Samaria, he goes into town, he's preaching the gospel People are responding all over the place. They're seeing what God's doing with unclean spirits, with those that that, um, are are sick, and they're hearing the message and they're believing. And the result is there was much joy in that city. And it's just a reminder to us, Jesus changes lives. Jesus offers us joy. Even in the midst of trials, he offers us joy if we will trust him. Joy isn't about being happy and, and unicorns and rainbows all the time. Joy is saying, I trust God. He's got this. I am content in that. And so there was much joy in that city. You know, we, we take these two points together. The church is dying. The report of the church's death is greatly exaggerated. And we see an example of, a, of, of Christians that were so committed to Christ, that were so committed to His church that they were willing to not renounce their faith, they were willing to not renounce their association with the church, but to go and spread, and God's word spreads and people come to Christ. At what cost? Some of them lost their homes. Some of them lost their freedom. Some of them were beaten. Some of them shed blood. Some of them had family members that were killed. And that was the cost for them to grow the church. Was it worth it? And there was joy in that city. It was worth it. 
Because the cause of Christ is always worth it. It is always worth it. And I come to even these seven, eight verses, and I say, how are we at counting the cost? At what cost would we spread the gospel? At what cost would we honor the church and our commitment to this community? Or what would we be willing to let get in the way of that? What would keep us from sharing the gospel? What would keep us from being here on Sunday morning? Those are important questions that reflect our commitment to Christ and His church. I'll say something that may be controversial, but I I firmly believe it. You cannot be committed to Christ without being committed to His church. His church is His bride. In the same way, I can't take... Where's one of our... uh, I'll pick on you guys. Newly married couples. (laughs) Not so new. I mean, a year or so. If I was to come to Joshua and just start ripping on Michaela, she's a jerk. I can't even believe you married her. So I, I'm kidding, by the way. Please, <laughs> he's about to come out of his seat. Do you see, the whole room gets tense. Why? Because because I'm a jerk for saying that. Um, and he is going to defend his bride. And so if we say we love Jesus, we can't hate his bride. We can't marginalize his bride. Because his church is his body and it is important to him. And it frustrates me when we marginalize our commitment to the church, but say we love Jesus because we are lying. We are lying. Now, I know churches have issues. And and, and I know that there are imperfect beings. But when we find a church that teaches God's word, that when we find a church that practices what God tells us to do, we need to be committed to that church. These believers were. They were committed enough to lose their property, lose lives, shed blood, move into Samaria, the hated Samaria. It'd be like going to San Francisco for us maybe and the giants and all that. Oh, no. If you're listening from San Francisco, we love you guys. (laughs) The giants, not so much. (laughs) They gave up everything to advance the gospel and to build the church. We rarely have been asked to give up much. But we chafe at it because it goes against our sensibilities or it goes against what I want to do. Now, when we're thinking of what to invest in in life, we know that the church will stand. We know that God's gospel is unquenchable. His church is unquenchable. So that, to me, is a good investment. It's guaranteed returns. I happened to own some Tesla stock. It was not a good week. But it was a good week for everything I did for the kingdom. Because that's unquenchable. That's verses 1 through 8. Sorry, got a little bit going there. We get through 9 through 25 and we zoom into an example. We, we, we get this contrast to the believers who are willing to give up everything who are willing and, and, and to live their commitment to Jesus and his church to a man that has no idea what that means and just wants personal gain. And so point number three, the church grew because the power of the gospel is greater than this world's best imitation. And so as we get into the story of Simon, it starts by Luke telling us again the power of the gospel, that this man who is a magician, possibly dabbling, probably dabbling in the occult, 
has nothing to offer when it compares to the gospel. Verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Pretty cool. He had discovered some power. It could have been trickery. Magic wasn't always illusion like we think. When we see a magician, we're like, how do you do it? And there's always a way he did it. Here, it often was demonic. It often was dealing with the occult. And we don't know, that we, we aren't told that, except that he practiced some sort of magic and trickery, and he had convinced everyone that he was somebody great. It goes on from there. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And we should shudder a little bit there. We've seen some other men that thought they were like God. We saw Nebuchadnezzar. We saw Herod. Uh, yeah, So he thinks that he's great. The people are saying he has the power of God. The wording here implies that they thought he was divine in some sort of fashion. Again, we're not given all the details, but we know enough to be afraid for him. And so he's called away. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with magic. And so what we know about Simon, he amazed people. So he was pretty good at what he did. He said he was somebody great. They paid attention to him. He had power. He had influence. What more could you ask? They thought he was a heavenly power, and he had had it for a long time. In fact, later legend, and and most scholars think some of this was exaggerated um, because they viewed Simon sort of as the start of a cult of Gnosticism that happened later. He probably wasn't, but they had taken his name. Um, but th- there was all these stories. Justin Martyr, who was also a native of Samaria, um, one of the early church fathers, said that Simon lived there and ended up moving to Rome where he continued tricking people. He continued this path. And that's actually important to understand where this story goes. Um, Hippolytus, another writer about heresies, he tells a, a, a nice story. We don't know if it's true or not, um, about Simon and Peter getting into it. And at last, Simon said that if he were buried alive, he would rise again on the third day. Commanding a grave to be dug, he ordered his disciples to heap earth upon him. They did as he commanded, but he remained in it until this day, for he was not the Christ. Whether that truly happened or not, you can see a magician doing this, right? Um, and so this is, this is Simon. And um, so in verse 12, what's interesting is there's a switch, there's a turnaround. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now this is setting up what's to come, and we have to understand some things here. The first thing is that the people saw something greater than Simon. Simon was an impersonator impersonating the power of God, trying to impersonate the ability of God to bring joy to the city, to really heal wounds. And the people saw that, and in verse 12, they all turned from Simon to Philip. Now, if Simon's had power a long time and thinks he's sort of divine, what's what's he feeling at that point? Jealousy. What is going on? But he recognizes, I can't do what they're doing. This seems real. And so he concocts this plan. Okay, how can I get in on this? And so 13, even Simon himself believed and was baptized. 
Now, we're going to see in the story, this looks like just a profession of belief and not true belief. And saying, and and coming along and being baptized without truly becoming part of God's church. Just as an aside with verse 12, as people believed, they were baptized, both men and women. And this is baptism in water. And it signified, it was symbolic of their belief in Jesus Christ, being buried with Christ, being raised again with Christ. But it also, baptism for them is, and and why I believe it's so important for us today, it also showed an identification with the church. And so these people accepted Christ and they were baptized into the church. They were baptized to say, these are my people. This is my family, my newly adopted family. This is where we stand. And men and women were both being baptized. So you have a couple boundaries being crossed. Number one, women are being included in the church. Samaritans are being included in the church. Praise God. Praise God because the culture had it wrong. But, but God was directing his church to get it right and to include men and women of all um, races, of all ethnicities. All were to be included and baptized into, adopted into the kingdom. And so one of the questions out of this I would ask you, have you been baptized? You know, I, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to go up front and get all wet in front of people and share 60 seconds of your testimony. But it signifies a, a visual belief, a visual commitment to Jesus and his church. And I think it's, it's so important. It's commanded in Scripture. It's instru- and we see it by example. If you haven't been, talk to one of us pastors. We're going to be doing a baptism class soon. And make a public commitment to Jesus Christ. That actually becomes sort of a signpost in people's lives. I made a public commitment to Christ, and that helps you as you move forward in your walk with Christ. So Simon, though, he comes along sort of in the shadows and and does this. And so we get to the next set of verses, 14 through 17. And and we see a really interesting situation with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to genuine believers in a way that included them fully into the church family. So we have Simon over here. We're going to leave that aside for a minute. We're going to get him in in point five. But in the in-between here, we see God working in the church in a unique way. This isn't how it happens now. It isn't how it happens other times. He works in a unique way to make sure the church knew the Samaritans were really part of the church fully part of the church, not on the fringe. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were family completely. I, I, I can't underestimate or I can't undersay how important that was in this text because the Samaritans were hated, marginalized, separated. And God does this this way to say, nope, not in my church. And so, so follow me in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So, so they hear that Philip's up in Samaria. They hear that people are coming to Christ. They send Peter and John to check it out, really to give confirmation. It doesn't look like a negative thing. It looks like they're trying to confirm this. And they came down, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's where those of you that remember vinyl, you, the, the little needle goes, what? Prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit? And this is an abnormal situation. This is unique to the beginning of the church. So these people had, ex- had believed in Jesus Christ. They had been baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. Now we know that as soon as we accept Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled and that never can go away. 
Um, but in this case, the Holy Spirit was withheld for a time for a specific reason. Not to be cruel, but to make sure this group was fully included in the church. And, and so Peter and John come. They pray for them that they might receive the Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this was a big, big step. Because this was Peter and John... Jewish as can be, coming from Jerusalem and seeing what God is doing, verifying it, praying that they'll receive the Spirit, and then laying hands on so that they will receive the Spirit, and the Spirit came and filled this church. We see something similar with Cornelius, by the way, but we'll get there. And, and so what this did was to the church in Jerusalem or to the church in Judea, it was an absolute stamp of approval that these men and women were part of the church in the same way that everyone else was. And they received the same spirit in, in fullness. And God, I think God wanted to do it on display for the church leaders to see so there was no doubt. Um, there, there are some other options for how to interpret that passage, but I'm just going to say I, I think that's the best one. To understand that this is, this is what God is doing. Some say, well, they didn't fully believe until Peter and John came. There's nothing in the text that seems to imply that. And so I, I think we say they, they believed, but God handled their salvation in a two-part process to make sure they were included fully in church family. There was no doubt. And so God's delay of blessing, and, and this is an interesting concept that I think helps us. God's delay of blessing was actually a greater blessing for them. If you were part of this church, you could say, why not us? Why haven't we received the Spirit? And for this time, the in-between time, it feels unfair. It feels like this is wrong. But, but they didn't see that God was doing something so much bigger to make sure His church was unified and one family. And so a delayed blessing that could be frustrating actually was God imparting a greater blessing of inclusion and acceptance into the church. And sometimes we, we live in that delay. We're like, God, why? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing this is usually what it is for us. And we have to realize God's doing something greater. He's doing something bigger. And we have to trust Him for that. And He used this to grow His church to Samaria. He's fulfilling Acts 1-8 right before our eyes as we read. It's amazing. And so out of this, an application point would be to look around and say, how are we doing and inviting people into the family, welcoming people and including people in the family? Are we looking around for people that may feel like they're on the fringe and and sucking them in and inviting them to things and and making them part of family? And and, and this is hard. And as we grow as a church, we have to keep reminding ourselves because it's easy to do it and then have our own little circle and say, yeah, we're good. But we've got to keep inviting people and keep welcoming people and keep adopting as many as we can into the family. Just as God supernaturally did for the church in Samaria. Then we get to the last point. Last few verses, 18 through 24. We come back to Simon. And Simon serves as an example to remind us salvation only comes through a surrendered heart of repentance. 
we cannot be saved on our own terms. Salvation only comes through a surrendered heart of repentance. We cannot be saved on our own terms. And I think this part of the story clarifies the gospel, clarifies that the only way to be saved is by repenting and giving our hearts to Jesus and then allowing his blood and his forgiveness to pour over us. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. That's a clue of where his heart is. Because he sees what's happening and he says, I'm going to give them money. I'm going to buy this power. Verse 19, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what's he doing here? He's trying to buy the Spirit, but he's trying to buy the power to impart the Spirit. He's trying to keep the control and power he had. He was the man. He was the supernatural man in town. And now he's not. He's got to get it back. And so he's working the system and saying, let me give you money. Show me the trick. Show me how you're doing this. Give me this power because then that's his advancement. His, this actually, this story is where we get the English term simony. I don't know if you've heard of that term. It, it's, it was coined to refer, coined, I like that. I, one of the scholars wrote that. It was coined to refer to the buying, to refer to the buying or selling of a church office. So later, unfortunately, the church, unfortunately, there's more than this Simon. And others in the church would buy their way into a church office, buy their way into being a pastor or a, a priest or some other office. But that is not what is to happen here. See, really what this exposes is someone that tries to be a leader and tries to have power in all the wrong ways. It's a misuse of spiritual leadership. He wanted the power for the wrong reasons. He wanted it for personal gain. And for us, if, if we start thinking of, okay, what, what can I, position can I have in the church? When we start to use that for personal gain financially or more often to see it to advance the cause of our own family and our own desires and our own preferences, that's, that's abuse of spiritual leadership when we see it as domineering or controlling and and looking for influence or power over people, that's a misuse and an abuse of spiritual leadership. It's so easy to try to force and push people to do what we want on our timetable, but that's never from God. I I think a test of this for if we're leading in a biblical way or leading in in a harsh way is how often do I get frustrated with people? How often do I get angry with people? If I'm angry and frustrated a lot, I'm probably not ministering in a godly way. On your own, you can look up 1 Peter 5 as it talks to elders about that. But we need to to finish this section. And so it goes on. But Peter said to him, Oh, that's nice. You can have the Spirit. No. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Basically, it says, take your money and take a flying leap. More literally, it says, may you die along with your money. It is about as serious of a rebuke as you can get to to wish death on somebody. But that is how awful what Simon is doing is because his heart isn't about repentance. It's about finding another way to get the Spirit and using spirituality for his own benefit. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, which is how we know that he wasn't a true believer. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so we have this, this strong response from Peter. You can't buy God. You can't control Him. And your heart's not right in this. You're not even really saved. There hasn't been repentance. And it is not lost on me that many in this world come to the church and play the part and say they're a believer, maybe even be baptized, maybe even become members. But if the heart of repentance isn't there, they're not part of the family. And so, so if you're here today, I'm glad you're here, but if you're, you're hoping that coming here saves you, it doesn't. And because I love you, I want you to know that the only thing that saves you is to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will save. I don't care if you come 52 weeks out of the year and in those years with 53 Sundays, 53. That doesn't save you. But a heart of repentance sold out for Jesus Christ, that saves you. That is the cost of discipleship. That's our cost of discipleship. His cost was death on the cross. By His stripes we are healed. Our cost is to to be sold out for Him. To be committed to Him. Not like Simon. And so this is a call to repentance. The gall of bitterness. I'd love to go into that more. It's an Old Testament um, reference talking about just a root of of poison. That he he has a root of poison inside of him that is stopping him from repentance. The bond of iniquity, the pride there is stopping him. And in verse 24, we see really, I think, a very sad verse. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It sounds on its face like a good answer. What's missing? Repentance. What's missing is his heart. He's still trying to do it on his own terms. He's like, okay, I get what you're saying. Can you, can you cut me a deal? He missed the point. It's about a heart of repentance that says, I have sinned and I need Jesus. And oh, that we have that heart of repentance. Verses 1 through 8 was a church that was willing to count the cost and give everything for Jesus and his church. The story of Simon is the opposite. And it breaks my heart. A man that I don't believe we will see in heaven. And we get to the conclusion, the end. We need to wrap up. The result of all of this persecution, the result of the the reports of the church's demise is that the unquenchable gospel spread. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so... Peter and John were so convinced that God had come to the Samaritans that on their way home, they stopped in every village and said, come to Christ, be part of the church. They firmly embraced that the church now included the Samaritans. And I love it because we see the church growing and being more diverse and spreading and being what God wants it to be. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, for the challenge of your word. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has just been checking out Christianity, just been playing the part, but hasn't given their heart to you, I pray that this morning would be the day that they say, Lord, I need you. I repent of my sins. I recognize you paid for them on the cross. You gave your life as the cost for my salvation. 
And so I give you my life in repentance as my part. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would be willing to stand for you no matter the circumstances. That no matter the circumstances, find a way to share the gospel and use those circumstances to share the gospel as the early church did. Lord, may we be committed to you and your people, your bride. Lord, thank you for your word and your name.